Chapter Eleven of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Eleven The Raid on Fairfax. When we captured prisoners it was my custom to examine them apart, and in this way, together with information gained from citizens, I obtained a pretty accurate knowledge of conditions in the enemy's camps. After a few weeks of partisan life I meditated a more daring enterprise than any I had attempted, and fortunately received aid from an unexpected quarter. A deserter from the 5th New York Cavalry, named Ames, came to me. He was a sergeant in his regiment and came in his full uniform. I never cared to inquire what his grievance was. The account he gave me of the distribution of troops and the gaps in the picket lines coincided with what I knew, and tended to prepossess me in his favour. But my men were suspicious of his good faith, and rather thought that he had been sent to decoy me with a plausible story. At first I did not give him my full confidence, but accepted him on probation. Ames stood all tests and until he was killed I never had a more faithful follower. Ames had come out from his camp on foot, and proposed to me that he would go back into his camp and return on horseback, if I would accept him. A recruit, Walter Franklin, had just come to me, but he was not mounted. With my approval he had agreed to go with Ames to get a horse. They trudged on foot through the snow, twenty-five miles, entered the camp of the 5th New York Cavalry at night, unchallenged and rode out on fine horses. At the same time, with a number of men, I started on a raid in another direction, and had rather a ludicrous adventure. We met an old country doctor, Dr. Drake, in a desolate condition, walking home through mud and snow. He told us he had been going the rounds, visiting his patients, when he had met a body of cavalry that was not far ahead of us. They had robbed him of his horse, saddlebags, and medicine. As the blockade had made medicine scarce, this was a severe loss to the community. We spurred on to overtake the raiders, and intercepted a party that had stopped at a house. They exceeded us in numbers, but they were more intent on saving themselves and their plunder than on fighting. They scampered away, with us close behind them. Soon they got to Horsepen Run, which was booming from the melting snows, and the foremost man plunged into the stream. He got a good ducking, and was glad to get back a prisoner. His companions did not try to swim after him, but preferred to surrender. They were loaded with silver spoons and valuables they had taken, but the chief prize was old Dr. Drake's saddlebags, which they had not opened. The silver was returned to the owners, and the prisoners were sent to Richmond. When we got back to Middleburg, we found Ames and Franklin with their fine horses. I now determined to give Ames one more trial and so took him with me on a raid to Fairfax. But he went as a combatant without arms. I had found out that there was a picket post at a certain crossroads, and went to attack it in a rain on a dark night, when there was snow on the ground. As only a raccoon could be supposed to travel on such a night, I knew the pickets would feel safe and would be sound asleep, so that a single shot would create a panic. We stopped to inquire of a farmer the location of the post. He had been there during the day, 
and said that there were one hundred men who slept in a schoolhouse. He asked me how many men I had, and I replied, Seventeen, but they will think there are a hundred. They could not count in the dark. We made no attempt to flank the picket to prevent his giving the alarm, but we went straight down the road. One of the men, Joe Nelson, was sent ahead to catch the vedette. When the vedette saw Joe he fired at him and started at full speed to the reserve, but we were on his heels and got there almost as soon as he did. The yells of my men resounded through the pines, and the Yankees all fled and left their horses hitched to the trees. As it was very dark we could not catch many of the men, but we got all their horses. My attention was attracted to Ames, who struck a man with a carbine he got from him. I don't remember why. We were soon back on the pike and trotting towards the Blue Ridge with the prisoners and horses. When it was daylight Wyndham mounted his squadrons and started full speed after us. After going twenty miles he returned to camp with half of his men leading broken-down horses. Wyndham was soon afterwards relieved, but not before we had raided his headquarters, and carried off his staff, his horses, and his uniform. I now determined to execute my scheme to capture both General Stoughton and Wyndham at their headquarters. Ames, about whose fidelity there was no longer any question, knew where their headquarters were, and the place was familiar to me as I had been encamped there. I also knew, both from Ames and the prisoners, where the gaps in the lines were at night. The safety of the enterprise lay in its novelty. Nothing of the kind had been done before. On the evening of March 8, 1863, in obedience to orders, twenty-nine men met me at Dover, in Loudoun County. None knew my objective point, but I told Ames after we started. I remember that I got dinner that day with Colonel Chancellor, who lived near Dover. Just as I was about to mount my horse, as I was leaving, I said to him, I shall mount the stars to-night, or sink lower than plummet ever sounded. I did not rise as high as the stars, but I did not sink. I then had no reputation to lose, even if I failed, and I remembered the motto, Adventures to the Adventurous. The weather conditions favoured my success. There was a melting snow on the ground, a mist, and about dark a drizzling rain. Our starting point was about twenty-five miles from Fairfax Courthouse. It was pitch dark when we got near the cavalry pickets at Chantilly, five or six miles from the courthouse. At Centerville, three miles away on the Warrenton Pike and seven miles from the courthouse, were several thousand troops. Our problem was to pass between them and Wyndham's cavalry without giving the alarm. Ames knew where there was a break in the picket lines between Chantilly and Centerville, and he led us through this without a vedette seeing us. After passing the outpost, the chief point in the game was won. I think no man with me except Ames realized that we were inside the enemy's lines. But the enemy felt secure, and was as ignorant as my men. The plan had been to reach the courthouse by midnight, so as to get out of the lines before daybreak. But the column got broken in the dark, and the two parts travelled around in a circle for an hour, looking for each other. After we closed up, we started off and struck the pike between Centerville and the courthouse. But we turned off into the woods when we got within two or three miles of the village, as Wyndham's cavalry camps were on the pike. We entered the village from the direction of the railroad station. 
There were a few sentinels about the town, but it was so dark that they could not distinguish us from their own people. Squads were detailed to go around to the officers' quarters and to the stables for the horses. The courthouse yard was the rendezvous where all were to report. As our great desire was to capture Wyndham, Ames was sent with a party to the house in which he knew Wyndham had its quarters. But fortune was in Wyndham's favor that time, for that evening he had gone to Washington by train. But Ames got his two staff officers, his horses, and his uniform. One of the officers, Captain Barker, had been Ames's captain. Ames brought him to me and seemed to take great pride in introducing him to me as his former captain. When the squads were starting around to gather prisoners and horses, Joe Nelson brought me a soldier who said he was a guard at General Stoughton's headquarters. Joe had also pulled the telegraph operator out of his tent. The wires had been cut. With five or six men I rode to the house, now the Episcopal Rectory, where the commanding general was. We dismounted and knocked loudly at the door. Soon a window above was opened, and someone asked who was there. I answered, Fifth New York Cavalry, with a dispatch for General Stoughton. The door was opened, and a staff officer, Lieutenant Prentice, was before me. I took hold of his nightshirt, whispered my name in his ear, and told him to take me to General Stoughton's room. Resistance was useless, and he obeyed. A light was quickly struck, and on the bed we saw the general sleeping as soundly as the Turk when Marco Bazaris waked him up. There was no time for ceremony, so I drew up the bedclothes, pulled up the general's shirt, and gave him a spank on his bare back, and told him to get up. As his staff officer was standing by me, Stoughton did not realize the situation, and thought that somebody was taking a rude familiarity with him. He asked in an indignant tone what all this meant. I told him that he was a prisoner, and that he must get up quickly and dress. I then asked him if he had ever heard of Mosby, and he said he had. "'I am Mosby,' I said. "'Stuart's cavalry has possession of the courthouse. Be quick and dress.' He then asked whether Fitz Lee was there. I said he was, and he asked me to take him to Fitz Lee. They had been together at West Point. Two days afterwards I did deliver him to Fitz Lee at Culpeper Courthouse. My motive in trying to deceive Stoughton was to deprive him of all hope of escape, and to induce him to dress quickly. We were in a critical situation, surrounded by the camps of several thousand troops, with several hundred in the town. If there had been any concert between them, they could easily have driven us out, but not a shot was fired, although we stayed there over an hour. As soon as it was known that we were there, each man hid and took care of himself. Stoughton had the reputation of being a brave soldier, but a fop. He dressed before a looking-glass as carefully as Sardanapalus did when he went into battle. He forgot his watch and left it on the bureau, but one of my men, Frank Williams, took it and gave it to him. Two men had been left to guard our horses when we went into the house. There were several tents for couriers in the yard, and Stoughton's horses and couriers were ready to go with us when we came out with the general and his staff. When we reached the rendezvous at the courtyard, I found all the squads waiting for us with their prisoners and horses. There were three times as many prisoners as my men, and each was mounted and leading a horse. To deceive the enemy and baffle pursuit, the cavalcade started off in one direction, and, 
soon after it got out of town, turned in another. We flanked the cavalry camps, and were soon on the pike between them and Centerville. As there were several thousand troops in that town, it was not thought possible that we would go that way to get out of the lines, so the cavalry, when it started in pursuit, went in an opposite direction. Lieutenant Prentiss and a good many prisoners who started with us escaped in the dark, and we lost a great many of the horses. A ludicrous incident occurred when we were leaving Fairfax. A window was raised, and a voice inquired, in an authoritative tone, what that cavalry was doing in the street. He was answered by a loud laugh from my men, which was noticed to him that we were not his friends. I ordered several men to dismount and capture him. They burst through the front door, but the man's wife met them in the hall and held her ground like a lioness to give her husband time to escape. He was Colonel Johnstone, who was in command of the cavalry brigade during Wyndham's absence. He got out through the back door in his night-clothes and barefooted, and hid in the garden. He spent some time there, as he did not know when we left, and his wife could not find him. Our safety depended on our getting out of the Union lines before daybreak. We struck the pike about four miles from Centerville. The danger I then apprehended was pursuit by the cavalry, which was in camp behind us. When we got near the pike, I halted the column to close up. Some of my men were riding in the rear, and some on the flanks to prevent the prisoners from escaping. I left a sergeant, Hunter, in command, and rode forward to reconnoitre. As no enemy was in front, I called to Hunter to come on, and directed him to go forward at a trot and to hold Stoughton's bridle reins under all circumstances. Stoughton no doubt appreciated my interest in him. With Joe Nelson I remained some distance behind. We stopped frequently to listen for the hoofbeats of cavalry in pursuit, but no sounds could be heard save the hooting of owls. My heart beat higher with hope every minute. It was the crisis of my fortunes. Soon the campfires on the heights around Centerville were in sight. My plan was to flank the position, and pass between that place and the camps at Chantilly. But we soon saw that Hunter had halted, and I galloped forward to find out the cause. I saw a fire on the side of the road about a hundred yards ahead of us, evidently a picket post. So I rode forward to reconnoitre, but nobody was by the fire, and the picket was gone. We were now half a mile from Centerville, and the dawn was just breaking. It had been the practice to place a picket on our road every evening, and withdraw it early in the morning. The officer in charge concluded that, as it was near daylight, there was no danger in the air, and he had returned to camp and left the fire burning. That was the very thing I wanted him to do. I called Hunter to come on, and we passed the picket fire, and then turned off to go around the forts at Centerville. I rode some distance ahead of the column. The camps were quiet. There was no sign of alarm. The telegraph wires had been cut, and no news had come about our exploit at the courthouse. We could see the cannon bristling through the redoubts, and hear the sentinel on the parapet call to us to halt. But no attention was paid to him, and he did not fire to give the alarm. No doubt he thought that we were a body of their own cavalry going out on a scout. But soon there was a shot behind me, and turning around I saw Captain Barker dashing towards a redoubt, and Jake the Hungarian close behind him, and about to give him another shot, when Barker's horse stumbled and fell on him in a ditch. We soon got them out and moved on. 
All this happened in sight of the sentinels and in gunshot of their camps. After we had passed the forts and reached Cub Run, a new danger was before us. The stream was swift and booming from the melting snow, and our choice was to swim or to turn back. In full view behind us were the white tents of the enemy and the forts, and we were within cannon range. Without halting a moment I plunged into the stream, and my horse swam to the other bank. Stoughton followed and was next to me. As he came up the bank, shivering from his cold morning bath, he said, "'Captain, this is the first rough treatment I have to complain of.' Fortunately not a man or a horse was lost. When all were over, I knew there was no danger behind us, and we were as safe as Tam O'Shanter thought he would be if he crossed the Bridge of Dune ahead of the witches. I now left Hunter in charge of the column, and with one of my men, George Slater, galloped on to see what was ahead of us. I thought a force might have been sent to intercept us on the pike we had left that runs through Centerville. I did not know that Colonel Johnstone, with his cavalry, had gone in the opposite direction. We crossed Bull Run at Sudley Ford and were soon on the historic battlefield. From the heights of Groveton we could see that the road was clear to Centerville, and that there was no pursuit. Hunter soon appeared in sight. The sun had just risen, and in the rapture of the moment I said to Slater, "'George, that is the son of Austerlitz!' I knew that I had drawn a prize in the lottery of life, and my emotion was natural and should be pardoned. I could not but feel deep pity for Stoughton when he looked back at Centerville, and saw that there was no chance of his rescue. Without any fault of his own, Stoughton's career as a soldier was blasted. There is an anecdote told of Mr. Lincoln that, when it was reported to him that Stoughton had been captured, he remarked, with characteristic humor, that he did not mind so much the loss of a general, for he could make another in five minutes, but he hated to lose the horses. Slater and I remained for some time behind as a rear-guard, and overtook Hunter, who had gone on in command, at Warrenton. We found that the whole population had turned out and were giving my men an ovation. Stoughton and the officers had breakfast, with a citizen named Beckham. The general had been a classmate at West Point with Beckham's son, now a Confederate artillery officer, and had spent a vacation with him at his home. Stoughton now renewed his acquaintance with his family. We soon remounted and moved on south. After crossing the Rappahannock, the men and prisoners were put in charge of Dick Moran with orders to meet me near Culpeper Courthouse the next morning, while, with Hunter and the officers on parole, I went on in advance and spent the night near Brandy. As I had been in the saddle for thirty-six hours, I retired to rest as soon as we had eaten supper. The next morning there was a cold rain, but after breakfast we started for General Fitz Lee's headquarters. When we arrived at our destination we hitched our horses in the front yard and went into the house, where we found Fitz Lee writing at a table before a log fire. We were cold and wet. In the 1st Virginia Cavalry Fitz Lee and I had been well acquainted. He was very polite to his old classmate and to the officers when I introduced them, but he treated me with indifference, did not ask me to take a seat by the fire, nor seem impressed by what I had done. As a matter of historical fact, it is well known that this episode created a sensation in both armies, but the reception I received convinced me that I was not a welcome person at those headquarters. 
So, bidding the prisoners good-bye, and bowing to Fitz Lee, Hunter and I rode off in the rain to the telegraph office, to send a report to Stuart, who had his headquarters at Fredericksburg. The operator told me that Stuart was on his way to Culpeper, and would arrive on the train that evening, but he sent the dispatch, and it was delivered to Stuart. I met him at the depot, and can never forget the joy his generous heart showed when he met me. That was a sufficient reward. Major John Pelham was with Stuart. This was the last time I ever saw Pelham, for he was killed a week afterwards. As we walked off, Stuart handed me a commission as captain from General John Letcher. It gave me rank with the Virginia troops, but as there were no such troops it was a blank form, and I regarded it as a mockery. Stuart remarked that he thought the Confederate War Department would recognize it. I said, in rather an abrupt and indignant tone, I want no recognition. I meant official recognition. I did not affect to be indifferent to public praise. Such a man is either too good or too bad to live in this world. Stuart published a general order announcing the capture of Stoughton, and had it printed, giving me fifty copies. That satisfied me, and I soon returned to my field of operations, and again began war on the Potomac. Headquarters, Cavalry Division, March 12, 1863 General Orders Captain John S. Mosby has for a long time attracted the attention of his generals by his boldness, skill, and success, so signally displayed in his numerous forays upon the invaders of his native soil. None know his daring enterprise and dashing heroism better than those foul invaders, those strangers themselves to such noble traits. His last brilliant exploit, the capture of Brigadier General Stoughton, U.S.A., two captains and thirty other prisoners, together with their arms, equipments, and fifty-eight horses, justifies this recognition in general orders. This feat, unparalleled in the war, was performed in the midst of the enemy's troops at Fairfax Courthouse, without loss or injury. The gallant band of Captain Mosby shares his glory, as they did the danger of this enterprise, and are worthy of such a leader. Signed, J. E. B. Stewart, Major General Commanding. In a few days Fitz Lee wrote me that the detail of men I had from his brigade must return to their regiment. This attempt to deprive me of a command met with no favour from Stuart. I sent him Fitz Lee's letter, and he issued an order for them to stay until he recalled them. When the armies began to move in April, the men went back, but a considerable number of recruits had joined me, and what the enemy called my depredations continued. In the published records of the war is the following letter from General Robert E. Lee to President Davis, informing him of another success I had soon after the capture of Stoughton. Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia, March 21, 1863 you will, I know, be gratified to learn by the enclosed dispatch that the appointment confirmed a few days since on Captain John S. Mosby was not unworthily bestowed. The point where he struck the enemy is north of Fairfax Courthouse, near the Potomac, and far within the lines of the enemy. I wish I could receive his appointment as Major, or some official notification of it, that I might announce it to him. Signed, R. E. Lee, General. 
A dispatch from Lieutenant O'Connor, Provost Marshal at Fairfax Courthouse, sent to Washington an hour after we left the village, confirms the account I have given of our visit. He said, Captain Mosby, with his command, entered this town this morning at 2 a.m. They captured my patrols, horses, etc. They took Brigadier General Stoughton and horses, and all his men detached from his brigade. They took every horse that could be found, public or private, and the commanding officer of the post, Colonel Johnstone, of the 5th New York Cavalry, made his escape from them in a nude state by accident. They searched for me in every direction, but being on the Vienna road visiting outposts, I made my escape. And in a report the next day to Colonel Wyndham, O'Connor said, On the night of the 8th instant, say about 2 or half-past 2 a.m., Captain Mosby, with his command, entered the village by an easterly direction. They proceeded to Colonel Wyndham's headquarters and took all his horses and movable property with them. In the meantime another party of them entered the residence of Colonel Johnstone and searched the house for him. He had, on their entering the town, heard of their movements, and believing them to be the patrol, went out to halt them, but soon found out his mistake. He then entered the house again, he being in a nude state, and got out backwards, they in hot pursuit of him. In the meantime others were dispatched to all quarters where officers were lodged, taking them out of their beds, together with a telegraph operator and assistant. Stoughton was soon exchanged, but did not return to the army. The circumstances of his capture wrecked him as a soldier. He was accused of negligence in allowing the gap in the picket line through which we entered. The commander of the cavalry pickets, Colonel Wyndham, was responsible for that, and there is a letter in the war records from Stoughton to Wyndham calling his attention to it. I allowed Stoughton to write a letter, which I sent through a citizen, to Wyndham, in which he reproached him for the management of his outposts. But Wyndham ought not to be blamed, because he did not anticipate an event that had no precedent. He did exercise reasonable vigilance. In this life we can only prepare for what is probable, not for every contingency. Colonel Johnstone lost his clothes and lay hidden for some time before he heard we were gone. O'Connor said he appeared in the state of Adam before the fall, but he could not survive the ridicule he incurred by it, and disappeared. Near Piedmont, Virginia, March 18, 1863. General. Yesterday I attacked a body of the enemy's cavalry at Herndon Station, in Fairfax County, completely routing them. I brought off twenty-five prisoners, a major, one captain, two lieutenants, and twenty-one men all their arms, twenty-six horses, and equipments. One, severely wounded, was left on the ground. The enemy pursued me in force, but were checked by my rear guard, and gave up the pursuit. My loss was nothing. The enemy have moved their cavalry from Germantown back of Fairfax Courthouse on the Alexandria Pike. In this affair my officers and men behaved splendidly. Signed, John S. Mosby Endorsement. Major General J. E. B. Stewart. Headquarters of the Army of Northern Virginia. March 21, 1863. Respectfully forwarded for the information of the Department, and as evidence of the merit and continued success of Captain Mosby. Signed, R. E. Lee, General. This Drainsville affair led to the following interesting correspondence after the war. 
it is of special value in illustrating the feelings of his enemies, the men who actually fought with him, towards Mosby. Washington, Vermont, December 19, 1910 Colonel John S. Mosby, Washington, D.C. Dear Colonel and Friend, You will be surprised to receive a letter from me, one you know so little, but will remember. In noticing today the item of the enclosed clipping, Mosby's comments on President Taft's appointment of a Confederate soldier, White, to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I could not resist the privilege of writing to you, as I believe now I am the only surviving one of the four officers, Major Wells, Captain Schofield, Lieutenant Watson, and myself, you captured at Herndon Station, near Drainsville, Virginia, St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1863, and with us the picket post of twenty-one men. Your treatment, and that of your men to us on that occasion, has always been gladly remembered by us all, in every respect courteous. And you kindly gave us our horses to ride from Upperville to Culpeper Courthouse, which was an act of the highest type of a man, and should bury deep forever the name of a gorilla, and substitute to picket line a bad disturber. Most sincerely and cordially yours, Lieutenant P. C. J. Cheney. Burlington, Vermont, December 28, 1910. Dear Colonel Mosby, the enclosed letter from Lieutenant P. C. J. Cheney of Washington, Vermont, explains itself. During the war for the Union he was a first lieutenant in the 1st Vermont Cavalry, and was captured by you at Herndon Station on the 17th of March, 1863. Lieutenant Cheney was one of the bravest and best officers in the regiment, and was dangerously wounded in the charge made by the company in front of Round Top, Gettysburg, on the afternoon of July 3, 1863. I had the pleasure of meeting you at the inauguration of President McKinley, at which time I was adjutant of Vermont, and presented you to Honorable Josiah Grout, then Governor of this State, who at the Miskell Farm fight between the 1st Vermont Cavalry and yourself was most dangerously wounded. You were kind enough to say that the 1st Vermont Cavalry was one of the very best regiments you had met in action. Yours very truly, T. S. Peck General Stahl described the Miskell Farm affair in his report of April 2, 1863, as follows. It appears that on the evening of the 31st Ultimo, Major Taggart, at Union Church two miles above Peach Grove, received information that Mosby, with about sixty-five men, was near Drainsville. He immediately dispatched Captain Flint with one hundred fifty men of the 1st Vermont to rout or capture Mosby and his force. Turning to the right, they followed up the broad run to a place marked J. Meskel. Here at a house they came upon Mosby, who was completely surprised and wholly unprepared for an attack from our forces. Had a proper disposition been made of our troops, Mosby could not, by any possible means, have escaped. It seems that around this house was a high board fence and stone wall, between which and the road was another fence and ordinary farm gate. Captain Flint took his men through the gate, and at a distance from the house fired a volley at Mosby and his men, who were assembled about the house, doing but slight damage to them. He then ordered a sabre charge, which was also ineffective, on account of the fence which intervened. Mosby waited until the men were checked by the fence, 
and then opened the gate of the barnyard, where his men were collected, saddling and bridling their horses, and opened fire upon them, killing and wounding several. The men became panic-stricken, and fled precipitately through this gate, through which to make their escape. The opening was small. They got wedged together, and a fearful confusion followed, while Mosby's men followed them up, and poured into the crowd a severe fire. Here, while endeavouring to rally his men, Captain Flint was killed, and Lieutenant Grout, of the same company, mortally wounded, will probably die today. Mosby, who had not had time to mount his horse, personally threw open the barnyard gate and ordered his men to charge through it, which they did with a terrific yell. Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia, March 23, 1863 Captain J. S. Mosby Captain You will perceive from the copy of the order herewith enclosed that the President has appointed you Captain of Partisan Rangers. The General Commanding directs me to say that it is desired that you proceed at once to organize your company, with the understanding that it is to be placed on a footing with all the troops of the line, and to be mustered unconditionally in the Confederate service for and during the war. Though you are to be its Captain, the men will have the privilege of electing the lieutenants so soon as its members reach the legal standard. You will report your progress from time to time, and when the requisite number of men are enrolled, an officer will be designated to muster the company into the service. Signed, W. W. Taylor, A. A. G. Mosby's Report to Stewart Fauquier County, Virginia, April 7, 1863 General I have the honor to submit the following report of the operations of the cavalry since rendering my last report. On Monday, March 16, I proceeded down the Little River Pike to capture two outposts of the enemy, each numbering sixty or seventy men. I did not succeed in gaining their rear as I had expected, and only captured four or five vedettes. It being late in the evening, and our horses very much jaded, I concluded to return. I had gone not over a mile back when we saw a large body of enemy's cavalry, which, according to their own reports, numbered two hundred men, rapidly pursuing. I feigned a retreat, desiring to draw them off from their camps. At a point where the enemy had blockaded the road with fallen trees, I formed to receive them, for with my knowledge of the Yankee character I knew they would imagine themselves fallen into an ambuscade. When they had come within one hundred yards of me, I ordered a charge, to which my men responded with a vim that swept everything before them. The Yankees broke when we got in seventy-five yards of them, and it was more of a chase than a fight, for four or five miles. We killed five, wounded a considerable number, and brought off one lieutenant and thirty-five men prisoners. I did not have over fifty men with me, some having gone back with the prisoners, and others having gone on ahead when we started back, not anticipating any pursuit. On Monday, March 31st, I went down in the direction of Drainsville to capture several strong outposts in the vicinity of that place. On reaching there I discovered that they had fallen back about ten miles down the Alexandria Pike. I then returned six or eight miles back, and stopped about ten o'clock at night at a point about two miles from the pike. Early the next morning one of my men, whom I had left over on the Leesburg Pike, came dashing in, and announced the rapid approach of the enemy. 
but he had scarcely given us the information when the enemy appeared a few hundred yards off, coming up at a gallop. At this time our horses were eating, all had their bridles off, and some even their saddles. They were all tied in a barnyard. Throwing open the gate, I ordered a counter-charge, to which my men promptly responded. The Yankees, never dreaming of our assuming the offensive, terrified at the yells of the men as they dashed on, broke and fled in every direction. We drove them in confusion seven or eight miles down the pike. We left on the field nine of them killed, among them a captain and lieutenant, and about fifteen too badly wounded for removal, in this lot two lieutenants. We brought off eighty-two prisoners, many of these also wounded. I have since visited the scene of the fight. The enemy sent up a flag of truce for their dead and wounded, but many of them being severely wounded, they established a hospital on the ground. The surgeon who attended them informs me that a great number of those who escaped were wounded. The force of the enemy was six companies of the 1st Vermont Cavalry, one of their oldest and best regiments, and the prisoners inform me that they had every available man with them. They were certainly not less than two hundred. The prisoners say it was more than that. I had about sixty-five men in this affair. In addition to the prisoners, we took all their arms and about one hundred horses and equipments. Privates Hart, Hurst, Keyes, and Davis were wounded. The latter has since died. Both on this and several other occasions they have borne themselves with conspicuous gallantry. In addition to those mentioned above, I desire to place on record the names of several others, whose promptitude and boldness in closing in with the enemy contributed much to the success of the fight. They are Lieutenant Chapman, late of Dixie Artillery, Sergeant Hunter, and Privates Wellington and Harry Hatcher, Turner, Wild, Sowers, Ames, and Silbert. There are many others, I have no doubt, deserving of honorable mention, but the above are only those who came under my personal observation. I confess that on this occasion I had not taken sufficient precautions to guard against surprise. It was ten at night when I reached the place where the fight came off on the succeeding day. We had ridden through snow and mud upwards of forty miles, and both men and horses were nearly broken down. Besides, the enemy had fallen back a distance of about eighteen miles. Signed, John S. Mosby, Captain Commanding. Major General J. E. B. Stewart. Endorsements. Headquarters, Cavalry Division, April 11, 1863 respectfully forwarded, as in perfect keeping with his other brilliant achievements, recommended for promotion. Signed, J. E. B. Stewart, Major General. Headquarters, Army Northern Virginia, April 13, 1863. Respectfully forwarded for the information of the Department. Telegraphic reports already sent in. Signed, R. E. Lee, General. April 22, 1863. Adjutant General, nominate as major if it has not already been done. Sign, J. A. S. Seddon. Report of General Stahl, Fairfax Courthouse, May fifth, eighteen sixty-three. On the third of May, between eight and nine a.m., Mosby, with his band of guerrillas, together with a portion of the Black Horse Cavalry and a portion of a North Carolina regiment came suddenly through the woods upon fifty of our men of the 1st Virginia Cavalry, who were in camp feeding their horses, just having returned from a scout. 
the remainder of that regiment being out in a different direction to scout the country on the right of the Warrenton and Alexandria Railroad and toward the Rappahannock. Our men, being surprised and completely surrounded, rallied in a house close at hand and where a sharp fight ensued. Our men defended themselves as long as their ammunition lasted, notwithstanding the rebels built a large fire about the house of hay and straw and brushwood. The flames reached the house, and their ammunition being entirely expended, they were obliged to surrender. At this juncture, a portion of the 5th Regiment New York Cavalry, which was posted in the rear some distance from the 1st Virginia Cavalry, came to their rescue, making a brilliant charge, which resulted in the complete annihilation of Mosby's command, and recaptured our men and property. Our men pursued the rebels in every direction, killing and wounding a large number, and had our horses been in better condition, and not tired out by the service of the last few days, Mosby nor a single one of his men would have escaped. The rebel loss was very heavy, their killed being strewn along the road. Really, one man was killed and about twenty wounded. Telegram. Stahl to Heinzelman. May 30, 1863. We had a hard fight with Mosby this morning, who had artillery, the same which was used to destroy the train of cars. We whipped him like the devil, and took his artillery. My forces are still pursuing him. Mosby's Report to General Stuart. June 6, 1863. Last Saturday morning I captured a train of twelve cars on the Virginia and Alexandria Railroad, loaded with supplies for the troops above. The cars were fired and entirely consumed. Having destroyed the train, I proceeded some distance back, when I recognized the enemy in a strong force immediately in my front. One shell which exploded in their ranks sufficed to put them to flight. After going about a mile further, the enemy were reported pursuing. Their advance was again checked by a shot from the howitzer. In this way we skirmished for several miles, until seeing the approach of their overwhelming numbers and the impossibility of getting off the gun, I resolved to make them pay for it as dearly as possible. Taking a good position on a hill commanding the road, we awaited their onset. They came up quite gallantly, not in dispersed order but in columns of fours, crowded in a narrow lane. At eighty yards we opened on them with grape, and followed this up with a charge of cavalry. We drove them half a mile back in confusion. Twice again did they rally, and as often were sent reeling back. At last our ammunition became exhausted, and we were forced to abandon the gun. We did not then abandon it without a struggle, and a fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat ensued in which, though overpowered by numbers, many of the enemy were made to bite the dust. In this affair I had only forty-eight men. The forces of the enemy were five regiments of cavalry. My loss, one killed, Captain Hoskins, a British officer who fell when gallantly fighting, four wounded. It is with pleasure I recommend to your attention the heroic conduct of Lieutenant Chapman and Privates Mountjoy and Beatty, who stood by their gun until surrounded by the enemy. Middleburg, Virginia, June 10, 1863. General. I left our point of rendezvous yesterday for the purpose of making a night attack on two cavalry companies of the enemy on the Maryland shore. Had I succeeded in crossing the river at night, as I expected, I would have had no difficulty in capturing them. But unfortunately, 
my guide mistook the road, and instead of crossing by eleven o'clock at night, I did not get over until after daylight. The enemy, between eighty and one hundred strong, being apprised of my movement, were formed to receive me. A charge was ordered, the shock of which the enemy could not resist, and they were driven several miles in confusion, with the loss of seven killed and seventeen prisoners, also twenty-odd horses or more. We burned their tents, stores, camp equipage, etc. I regret the loss of two brave officers killed, Captain Brawner and Lieutenant Whitescarver. I also had one man wounded. Signed, John S. Mosby, Major of Partisan Rangers. Major General J. E. B. Stewart, Endorsement. June 15, 1863. Respectfully forwarded, in consideration of his brilliant services, I hope the President will promote Major Mosby. Signed, J. E. B. Stewart, Major General. Extracts from Stewart's Report of the Gettysburg Campaign Major Mosby, with his usual daring, penetrated the enemy's lines and caught a staff officer of General Hooker, bearer of dispatches to General Pleasanton, commanding United States Cavalry near Aldi. These dispatches disclosed the fact that Hooker was looking to Aldi with solicitude, and that Pleasanton, with infantry and cavalry, occupied the place, and that a reconnaissance in force of cavalry was meditated toward Warrenton and Culpeper. I immediately dispatched to General Hampton, who was coming by way of Warrenton from the direction of Beverly Ford, this intelligence, and directed him to meet this advance at Warrenton. The captured dispatches also gave the entire number of divisions from which we could estimate the approximate strength of the enemy's army. I therefore concluded in no event to attack with cavalry alone the enemy at Aldi. Hampton met the enemy's advance toward Culpeper and Warrenton, and drove him back without difficulty, a heavy storm and night intervening to aid the enemy's retreat. I resume my own position now at Rector's Crossroads, and being in constant communication with the commanding general, had scouts busily employed watching and reporting the enemy's movements, and reporting the same to the commanding general. In this difficult search the fearless and indefatigable Major Mosby was particularly efficient. His information was always accurate and reliable. End of chapter.